0: I think what's really interesting is that in our research, we found that the managers could sell and they could demonstrate the skills required to be good at sales, but they weren't necessarily the highest performing salespeople. What would you look for in a sales manager or sales director candidate? I would say it's coaching ability. That is the number one thing. Your manager's ability to coach your people pays massive dividends. It drives performance, obviously, but it also drives retention and engagement. It gets the team motivated, makes them want to work harder, gets them to want to stick around and grow their careers and and be a, a member of the team and of the organization. And the opposite is also true. Managers who suck at coaching, they don't get any performance lift. And they make their people want to leave. We used to call this, um, in the US, we call it the Michael Scott effect, but we call it the David Brent effect, I guess. And uh, it depends on where you're watching The Office. But yeah, the opposite is also true. You drive people away when you are really awful at coaching.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance. Exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, F- Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Matt Dixon. Matt claims he's one of the world's leading experts on sales. I think he's being polite. I think he might be the world's leading expert on sales. He's also an expert on customer service and customer experience. And he's the founding partner of DCM Insights, the Customer Understanding Lab. Now, he first came to most of our notice in 2011 when he wrote the fantastic book, his first book, The Challenger Sale. He sold a million copies, number one bestseller on Amazon and the Wall Street Journal for many months. Now, this is one of those books that most salespeople, if they have a sales book, have a copy of. I don't think as many people have read it as have bought it. Certainly, when I think about the way people approach sales and what's in challenger sale, frankly, if you'd read the book, you'd be approaching sales differently. So how do you, the challenger sale The nub of that, as Matt and I talk about, was really how do you get a customer to overcome their status quo? How do you get them to do something? So we talk a bit about that. How do you hire great salespeople? How do you spot a great salesperson? What would you do if you were looking today to write a job ad and then hire great salespeople? So we talk about that. We also talk about what is the difference between a great salesperson and a great sales manager? So your best salespeople might not make your best sales managers. In fact, often they don't. And so what makes a great sales manager or a great sales director? What are the chunks that you need? Coaching and ability to sell themselves, but also sales innovation. They need to be able to help the reps craft a different deal. So we talk about that. There's no research that says paying sales commission drives sales performance. And yet 99 out of 100 sales leaders still pay their sales team commission. So we have a chat about that. And I ask Matt if he has any data. And as he's the leading expert on sales in the world, I thought he might know something that I don't know, but he agreed with me that there's no research that proves that selling outside transactional sales, there's no evidence that paying commission drives performance. And he talks about three companies that he's found in his life that don't pay commission and why they were different and their stories, which you might find interesting and, and enlightening. We also talk about his latest book, which is The Jolt Effect, which is fantastic, which is somewhere between 40 and 60% of sales that sellers are involved in don't go anywhere. What happens to many of those is that actually the customer says, yes, I will buy it and then ghosts you. How do you overcome that? How do you take risk out of the equation? How do you get the customers to overcome their FOMU, fear of messing up? And then we also towards the end we talk about it's a long episode today because there's loads of great stuff in here so we just kept on going. After me, the next thing he was doing was working on his new book, and and he was keen to procrastinate, so I facilitated that for him. But he's got uh, an article in HBR, the November-December edition of HBR. What do today's rainmakers do differently? Which is the next frontier, I guess. Which is you know business coaches or lawyers or solicitors or consultants you know, these rainmakers in professional services organizations, what do they do? How do they sell? What does that look like? So have a look at that. We talk a little bit about that. That's going to be a book for 2025. I think they're doing some research around that at the moment. Absolutely fantastic conversation with Matt. I could have, as with so many guests, talked to him all day. And uh, I did wrap it up to stop me talking to him all day. Absolutely fantastic. I'm sure there's, if you are running a business, if you are in sales, if you're a seller, a sales manager anything you have, even if you're not in sales and you run a company or you're just interested in how the front end of the business should be or could be run differently because it frustrates you. Whoever you are, this episode is for you. Should be compulsory. Enjoy.
0: It's easier to explain where I'm from. I think who am I and what I do is a little bit trickier. I, I found that uh, my own mother doesn't know what I do and hasn't for a very long time. She's like, you live in the DC area. I don't understand what you do. You work for organizations that have lots of like letters and acronyms. And so you must be a spy, which I'm not. But I, I might describe myself as a sales anthropologist. You know, it, I'm a little bit different because... There's a lot of sales experts out there, of course, thought leaders, but most of them have been salespeople before, have led sales organizations or been sales directors, right? I have not done any of those things. So I'm a researcher by trade. I kind of bring research-based methods to understand really two things. One is, how are customers evolving how they buy from suppliers and vendors? And then what are the best salespeople doing to evolve their approach to meet the needs of today's customer? And how do we learn from those changes and techniques so that we can maybe bring some insight to everyone else and kind of create a tide that would lift all boats? As far as where I'm from, so I, as I mentioned, I live in the DC area now, originally from uh, New York. I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, Long Island in New Jersey. So all those
1: terrible accents uh, blended
0: to create something somewhat Midwestern, I guess.
1: So, <laughs> But why did you pick sales as a topic for research?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. So I went to graduate school to study uh, political economy. I actually got a PhD in that field. I thought I was going to be a college professor or university professor. And then I got kind of fed up with academia. As the, I think as the old saying goes, the fights are so big because the prizes are so small. Um, and so <laughs> I experienced that firsthand. And I I decided I want nothing to do with this, but I really was passionate about research and writing. And I, I've always been fascinated about the the intersection of kind of data and stories and and how we use that to drive behavior change. So I went out looking for places that might hire a refugee from academia. And I found this quirky little company at little company at the time called uh, Corporate Executive Board, later renamed uh, CEB. And I spent almost 20 years there in a variety of roles. I actually started off in the group doing research for CIOs and CTOs. And I think they determined pretty quickly that I'm a a technical idiot, so they moved me out of <laughs> into another area, um, and I, I kind of bounced around a little bit. I I ran the call center research group and the customer service customer experience practice, and picked up um, in kind of uh, 2004 2005, as memory if memory serves, uh, the sales uh, research group, and spent a good long time there. and And I actually found that to be the most interesting of all the domain areas that I was running research in it was just such a human endeavor. But the, I think the thing I found really interesting about it is that as I got into sales, I was kind of a, a new person to sales. And I started checking out some of the literature, the books that had been written, what thought leaders had to say. It, it seems like there was no shortage of opinions, but there was very little data. Um, so, And I always kind of scratched my head because I, I had colleagues who, I had a colleague who ran the marketing practice. I, said, well, I don't get it. Like there are you can study marketing at any top-tier university in the world. You can get an MBA with a marketing, you get a PhD in marketing. You can pick up, I mean, you can fill a football stadium with marketing journals, um, academic journals, peer-reviewed journals. There's tons of research out there. But the weird thing is that marketing, to me, always felt kind of squishy. It would be really hard to put your your finger on exactly what the benefit or ROI was of a, of marketing spend and investment. Versus sales, I what struck me as really odd is that There's so much data. You've got CRM data. You've got other data sources now, like conversational data. We'll talk about that with the jolt effect later, I'm sure. And you have a known outcome, right? You know whether a deal was won or lost. And so why is it that nobody ever bothered to study this data? Now, that wasn't entirely true, of course. Like uh, Neil Rackham, of course, famously in spin selling, did a a phenomenal and large sample size study of, of salespeople and how they had adapted their approaches from selling products to selling solutions which started then the whole kind of solution selling era. But even talking to Professor Rackham, he said, you know, there hasn't been a heck of a lot of research done since then. And so I think that's actually what he found interesting about Challenger. He's like, I haven't seen stuff like this in a really, like since the 80s when I wrote Spin Selling. And that's a shame. There should be more of it because it's a function that people, sure, there's art to it, but uh, there's a lot of science to it too. A lot of psychology, a lot of behavioral economics and, and things that are, measurable and studyable, and, you know, with data, I wish it was more the rule than the exception. But unfortunately, I think it's still the exception. And
1: you're right. And there's, you know, if the marketeers can't measure it, it must be because you were trying to raise awareness or it's just branding and they sidestep the whole thing. But with sales, we've either sold it or we haven't. We've either hit the number or we haven't. It's just, it feels like it's almost like looking at surgeons, except the salespeople take themselves, you know, you talk to a surgeon and they will have done some training. And and yeah. they will, const- good, good and they will constantly <laughs> be doing training. And then you, you, I interview salespeople and I said, uh, you know, what's it, what sales training have you had? And they look at me completely blankly, particularly if they've grown up and sort of come through mid-market. If they've come up through mid-market firms, you know, when did you last read a book on sales? Just like the, there's a thing and like, you're supposed to. Are you, you know, just, it's incredible the lack of, oh, I don't know, curiosity, I see. And, you know, the sort of startup and fast growth SMB clients that I work with. They are constantly trying to, you know, we're going to hire one salesperson. What do we do? We need to build a team. What do we do? We need to hire sales directors. What do we do? And they're constantly in the market. And they just, because they don't, like you, they don't come from a sales background. And they're like, what do I look for? What should I be saying? What does good look like? And they're just, I don't think you need to retire anytime soon. You can keep going. There's only you. Yeah, it's surprising.
0: <laughs> We're doing our best to try to fix things, uh, you know. But it's a, as you know, you know this. It's a lonely fight. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to study, and it turns out. I mean, a lot of the things that people assume, I think, about sales are actually turns out are true. The things that drive sales performance, but it turns out there's just as many things that people have long assumed drive sales performance that are actually wrong. May have been true at some point, but they don't. They no longer work, um, or maybe they've been overlooked. And so, as um, you know, mentor of mine said, "There's there's food for many winters when it comes to you know unpacking some of these mysteries and, and studying with data." There's not a lot of competition for <laughs> database
1: uh, research on sales. So, look, let me take you back. And if I quiz you about Challenger Sales, it's all there at the forefront of your mind. Yeah, you're like, sure, yeah, of course, sure, yeah. In that book, you say some of these things that are true and not true about high-performing salespeople. Maybe I can pick your brains on that. We can share that with, with the audience. Inspire them to go and pick up a copy.
0: Uh, you know, so you go ahead. What struck you? I mean, I've got my own. I
1: still have people talk to me as if they sort of say, well, I, I should be in sales. I talk a lot. And then, <laughs> okay, well, that's, you know, you, maybe you should be a surgeon. You've got 10 fingers, right? So, uh, yeah. but but then then there was this myth that, actually this sort of listen to speech ratio and salespeople, the best salespeople didn't actually speak so much. Okay, so now you're throwing me
0: a curveball. That's actually from Jolt Effect. Oh, okay, manager. right. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it, that not that an interesting one? Um, yeah, I mean, this wisdom's been passed down from sales leader to sales director to sales representative for decades, which is God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. So, you know, make sure you do more listening and let the customer do most of the talking. And we actually found that the highest performers in the Jolt research, we looked at conversational data. And for those who don't know that study, we looked at two and a half million recorded sales calls. And we found that that, you know, is actually the opposite is true. It's actually your highest performers talk more than the customer. Now it's they're not sucking the air out of the conversation, right? They're, they're not talking at like an extreme amounts, like 70, 80% of the time, but it is more than half of the conversation. And, you know, it's, again, you you go to LinkedIn and it seems like there's an infographic or some sort of like piece of thought leadership or something out there, you know, on a weekly basis saying, you know, you should talk, talk no more than 25% of the time. Your customers should be doing all the talking. You ask them questions, let them go. And I think it told us a couple of things. I think it, one, it told us that customers, and we know this from the challenger work, that this this approach of just, you know, grilling your customer with endless questions, especially those kind of hard to answer open-ended questions is exhausting for customers, actually. And we also learned from the challenger work that, you know, what your customer is really looking for is at the end of the day, not for you to come in and ask them what's keeping them up at night. It's for you to show them what should be keeping them up at night. And if you've got a good point of view, they want to hear it. Right. And so they want to, they'll listen to you and they will, they will hang on every word. But it also, as we dug into it, I think the important caveat to this is if what you're saying is useless, then that's this rule does not apply. So, <laughs> you know, so if look and you you do find some of that, so you do find uh, lower performers where they do a lot of the talking, you know, greater than 50 percent of the call, and you go and you look at what they're talking about, and it ends up being a lot of the stuff that's actually on your website. You know, here's who we work with, here's how many awards we won, here's how many offices we have, here's how long we've been in business, here's how what our growth rate is, here's how, you know, all the uh, the customers who work with us, and that's kind of why you got the sales meeting. The customer already knows that stuff. And so your your talking brochure act is not actually helping matters. It's making it worse. But when the salesperson comes in and they bring a point of view and they're knowledgeable about their product, about their use cases, about the value they deliver to customers, customers want to hear that stuff. And so, again, with the caveat being, if what you're delivering is a value then don't get hung up on the fact that you're doing most of the talking. Because if you're delivering real value, your customer wants to, they're like a sponge. They want to absorb it from you.
1: What that it reinforces something that I have long believed. Split selling to existing customers from new business, because I'm going to get good at the the their different talk tracks. But also one of the things we've done in the past is, you know, we have had a few people deal with our larger customers or or selling, selling it by size, because then you're solving the same problem, and even if you don't know as a salesperson, you're learning that you are, you know. And it always, I, some clients would come along and they say, "Well, we give our we give our sellers a range of different sizes of customers," and you and you go, well, "Why do you do that?" And they just, you know, they've got some rationale, but I couldn't put my finger on why it didn't feel right. Now it abs- makes sense to have that problem solving done with some regularity. Transactional problems you repeat, difficult problems you repeat you're going to end up with that insight.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting conundrum and I I've talked to com- so I've talked to companies who organize both ways, right? It's um a sales team focused on the large customers, sales teams focused on the smaller customers selling more transactionally. And like you said, the organization where it's like I've got some big clients and I've got some small clients and it's all in the same patch. And then I've I've also run into companies if you think about vertical industries um, that you know align vertically. So I'm uh, I'm focused on healthcare. I'm focused on uh, transportation uh, or hospitality and leisure. I'm focused on financial services. And Then I've also seen plenty of companies where they a patch might be composed of you know large and small customers across multiple industries defined by geographic boundaries. Right. So the only thing I have never seen is or you know organizing territories by like logo color of the <laughs> of the <laughs> client. Right that i haven't seen yet but but i've seen i feel like i've like you i've seen almost every make and manner and it, you know companies have often sometimes good reasons for organizing that way and other times it's kind of you scratch your head a little bit and you wonder you wonder why but you know that's uh, coverage model designs a, you know this i mean it's a tricky is a tricky science getting it right and it's it's obviously a function of who are you selling to what are you trying to sell to them how technical and complicated is that solution for how transactional how much industry knowledge do you need to have? Do your big customers behave truly differently from your small customers? You know, and I think, I think it is very interesting to just see these variations because you do, you do find almost every make and manner of design out there across good market organizations.
1: If you were hiring a salesperson tomorrow, what would you say you were looking for in the job ad? So I, I use an
0: analogy from uh, some work we did in the in the call center space. Uh, was, we wrote an article in HBR called uh, "Kick Ass Customer Service," which admittedly is not a very Harvard sounding title, but it was not my idea. So, um, but but it, we actually talked about uh, you know hiring profiles and what the best profiles are for service representatives. And I won't go into the details, but it was interesting because we came across some companies. You know, when you're trying to hire for call center jobs, like the the job postings read almost exactly the same, like. Do you like showing up on time and following a script and like you know taking really short bathroom breaks and like you know like um, yeah you know, this kind of working in a high turnover environment like it's not the most exciting it sounds like you're you're basically a a cog in the factory of sadness yeah. you know and um <laughs> I think uh, we found one company um is a call center outsourcer actually and so these guys got really good at hiring really talented call center reps and I think one of the things they noticed over time is that, and, and you and I experienced this as consumers, they found that the kind of person you were hiring 20 years ago when it was a lot of routine issues coming into the call center, maybe even 30 years ago, hiring the person who's good at following a script and a checklist and showing up on time and follow, you know, doing what they're told, that kind of routine job may have worked in a world of simple issues, but as issues have become complex, meaning what's happened in customer service is the easy stuff has kind of gone away like you and I solve those problems on our own we use the app on our phone we use the uh, you know we use the website we use the automated system the IVR system when we call a company to solve a lot of issues on our own now the, the complex stuff yeah you got to talk to a human being so what's happened is what ends up making it to the live service representatives is way more complicated on average than what it used to be like people don't call anymore to ask if their flights on time but they used to do that 30 years ago today they call the to do complex stuff. And so it's made the job really different. And so these guys figured this out and they said, look, that old job posting, you're kind of getting factory floor drones. What we want is problem solvers. And so it was a really interesting approach. They changed their job description, I think, to signal that we're looking for complex problem solvers. And the way they did it is they they—they said things like, not do you enjoy showing up on time and following a script and a checklist, but rather, do you enjoy planning complex road trips for your friends or your family? Like, do you do you enjoy these... And it was these really kind of interesting, like, and it got people, It immediately they saw like people who reached out to them would come in and say, I was struck by your ad because I love that stuff. Like I love being the person who's responsible for planning, the, you know, all the way back to university, planning the spring break trip with my, with my roommates. And now, you know, planning the family trip and the family reunion. Like I love those complex tasks. And they found that that person is really great for this world. Now, analogy to sales, I think is interesting because – if you subscribe to some of the stuff we find in uh, Challenger or in, or in Jolt Effect, and in short, in Challenger we know that the best sellers are bringing insights. They're they're teaching their customers something new. Yeah, I'm going to show you what is keeping you up at night, not or what should be not not find out what is keeping you up at night. And then the Jolt Effect we talked about this idea of instilling confidence, you know, and, and getting customers comfortable and confident with the decisions that they're. The right on the cusp of making, which can be really scary for a buyer, especially as those price tags go up and budget scrutiny goes up, and uh, you know your company's riffing people and you don't want to be the next head to roll because you made a bad purchase decision. So in that world, I would say that what you'd be looking for from a challenger standpoint, I recommend this to lots of companies, is you're looking for that intellectual curiosity. You're looking for that storytelling ability. And you're looking for somebody who really enjoys like a good, productive, intellectual exchange. And so I've heard companies say like, you know, if I'm talking to a sales candidate, I might ask them, um, teach me something that you're pretty sure I know nothing about, but you are an expert on. I'll give you five minutes, make get me to a level of expertise there. Or uh, for instance, let's have a debate. Dom, I'm going to, here's a topic nothing controversial of course maybe. like one of the i heard a good example um years ago in the states at least there was this always this big debate about whether university athletes should be paid mm-hmm. you know because they generate a lot of money for the university now of course the supreme court solved that and now they're you know they some of the top athletes are getting paid but that that's a good safe kind of thing say hey dom um here's a topic should college athletes university athletes be paid what side of the argument do you want i'll pick the other one and let's let's have a bit of a debate You know, and and you're just looking for somebody to kind of lean in and get into it. If that's what gets you out of bed in the morning, if that gets you fired up and it brings a smile to your face, like that's the kind of sales experience we want to bring to our customer. Now, I think on the Jolt side, what's really interesting is, you know, asking, especially experienced salespeople, like let's role play a little bit, um, you know, given the product you sell in your current company. And imagine I kind of, I hesitate what would you do? I'm not sure. And I'm starting to go dark on you. I'm going radio silent. What would you do? And nine times out of 10, those salespeople are like, give them a discount. (laughs) Or tell them, you know, create that burning platform. You got to dial up the cost of inaction, Dom. You got to show them the pain of shame is worse than the pain of change. More FUD, right? And instead, what you're really looking for is for that salesperson to say, I think I've got to do a better job getting that customer to understand I actually don't care if they buy the solution or not. <laughs> I want them to make a great decision for them, for their team and for their company. Whether you buy our product and service is secondary to that. If it's the right answer, let's get there, but my job is to help you figure that out. And and if it's not the right answer, I'm going to be the first person to tell you. You know, and so if my customer goes radio silent on me if they disengage, I kind of feel like maybe there's something going on there that I have done a disservice to them somehow. And they're kind of wringing their hands and they're not really sure. And I need to find out what that is
1: and then be of help to them, right? But you don't hear that a lot, do you? I mean, you know. The lady who used to be, she used to be MD. I think she's called Liz Garrett, but I might've got I've forgotten her name. I've spoken to her in ages. She used to be MD for Gallup in the UK. And she said to me, Dom, there's one question I always ask salespeople. Tell me about your best deal. And it feels as though it's getting to the same answer. And so nine out of 10 of them say, got this check got the commission, was number one. And the other guy says, tells you about the benefit to the customer. Downstream benefits of the sale made him feel proud. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it is, except for that answer is way better than mine. But, that's it <laughs> but, but it's, uh, it's the same thing. You're trying to find that one in 10 person. And you see that I think is the funniest thing because all of the research says human beings are not motivated by money. I can't. I can't unless it's transactional, where you know, if you and I are paid a a piece rate for putting widgets in a box, there's some motivational impact of paying us widget in a box per hour. Cognitive skills, I can find no evidence anywhere in the universe that says if we pay you, you do it better or more of it. And yet we pay salespeople commission, and it makes no (laughs) sense. (laughs) And not only that, but we spend hours fretting over the comp plan. And then fretting over what the salespeople will do with it—it's just like just pay them a salary. We don't pay anybody else commission. It's not necessary. It's a funny—it's a funny world. So you clearly
0: one of the books you listened to was uh, Drive yes. right, by Dan Pink, because that's fascinating, right? Just fascinating. But and you, that you—you you nailed the argument there. It's so funny because the world of um, so we wrote an article in HBR called uh, Dismantling the Sales Machine, and we hit on some of those themes. In all of my time studying sales and, and engaging with some of the most amazing sales leaders in the world, you know, leading their companies of growth, doing really innovative work, developing the next generation of sales people, sales leaders. there i've I can count on like one hand the number of uh, companies I've run across. It's now like twenty plus years I've been doing this that that don't pay their salespeople commission. One of them is a big strategy consultancy. Everyone would know. And the other one uh one of them is a microchip manufacturer uh, called uh microchip. Um and then the other a semiconductor manufacturer, and the other one was a company called Cameron Surface Systems that made um they made parts and and kind of uh, equipment that goes on oil rigs like drilling
1: platforms, stuff like that. But the fact that you the, the fact that there's like two and it's you remember it's like three and you <laughs> you remember right. them by name in your entire career. Yeah, that's it.
0: That's <laughs> it. I'm I'm done. And so <laughs> But it's so funny because you talk to these folks and they they all say the same thing, which is they talk about like uh, Microchip and Cameron. Their sales leaders told me that it was like, almost like they were sharing notes. They, I asked, why why did you do this? It's so unusual. It feels like the sales people come after you with pitchforks and, and torches for taking away their commission. And they said, you know, it's interesting because what we found was as we moved the organization from selling simple products on a transactional basis, the widgets in a box to your point, to selling solutions, what we found is that we needed a high-caliber salesperson to engage at a very senior executive level with our customer to problem-solve, to think about configuration of solutions, to think about value, to think about delivery, and really complex problems. So take Cameron, for instance. They found as they moved from selling drill bits to the, the purchasing manager to selling entire um you know drilling solutions they're engaging with like the CEO of the oil and gas company or the exploration company and that requires a different caliber of salesperson now what was interesting is that they found a lot of those people who were really deep on the product really deep on the customer's or organization their industry could you know were always brought along to along to the biggest sales meetings Yes, they asked those folks, "Why aren't you in sales? You're brilliant at this." Like the the CEO was hanging on every word. It was amazing the value you brought in this interaction. They say, "I don't want to put my comp at risk. I've got a family to feed. I don't I'm not interested in being I'm not coin operating that way." And so no, thanks. And so what kept the very best candidates out of sales was the fact that it was commission-based. So they took it away, and what they found is suddenly they had this huge and that in both these companies pay salary and a bonus based on company performance. Engineering, finance, marketing, sales all get comped the same way. It's based on how we do as a team and how the organization does. And they found that their growth rates have have skyrocketed since they've done that. And they are attracting and retaining their best, most competent customer-facing people in those sales roles. But they're not commissioned sales roles. But again, this, these are three companies I can think of in 20 years I've run across that do this. There are probably more, but um, it's very, very rare. And yet it makes no sense. <laughs> so.
1: I, I think also there are lots of people in sales roles that don't want to be called salespeople. So their company, don't call them salespeople and then don't pay them commission. So like all the corporate finance people I know are in sales roles not being paid commission and they don't want to be salespeople. So they, they, they sort of, they, there's a lot of people over here as well. Lots of the clients I work with don't come from a sales background. They they're come from a technical background. And they don't want to pay commission. And when I say you don't have to pay commission, they go, what do you mean? It's like, it's like it's completely new. And, and I say, well, all of this research that you've read over here, you know, you don't pay your developers per line of code and right. You don't pay, you don't pay your call center (laughs) people, you know, per call because they'd hang up or they'd write more lines of like, you know, all that. Then over here, your salespeople are selling things that are the wrong thing at the wrong price. Like, yeah, you know, the answer to this question.
0: Yeah, it, you, yeah, it's like, but it's like telling people that C A T really spells dog. and like blows their mind. It doesn't, you know, they can't process it because we've grown up in this world where the old adage like salespeople are coin out, yeah, and that's how you. And even some, I mean, it's it's so, it's a little bit reminds me of that scene in the Matrix with like the red pill and the blue pill. And even people who know deep down who are experienced, really, really smart and capable salespeople, they still there's a part of them. that's like, yeah, I'm leading big sales organizations. I totally buy what you're saying intellectually. It makes all the sense in the world, but I'm still going to keep paying commission. Like I got a president's club to plan. Yeah, you know? and, and I just go,
1: okay, whatever. <laughs> right, let me help you get the best people. Are you, I can only tell you what I think. It's your business. You need to run it the way you think is best. I've run into a number of sales organizations. Uh, interesting.
0: I um, One company I know very well was acquired by a much bigger company. And what was interesting is a lot of the product people left. A lot, of, a lot of people in finance, product, marketing, all the other, every other area, customer service, they all left. But the salespeople stayed. And it was quite interesting to me as I stayed in touch with some of these folks and I asked them why. And they said they just understand how to motivate and engage salespeople. And I said, oh, so you're saying they basically pay you more? And they say, uh, no, actually you get paid the same amount as the old company used to pay me. I paid the same exact amount. I said, well, what do they do? And there's some of the obvious stuff. Like, they, their spans of control. They invest a lot in in developing sales managers and leaders so that they can be great developers of people and leaders of of, uh, salespeople. They do a lot of uh, training and development of their folks. They invest in the best tools and technology to make them productive, make their lives easy. So all the kind of stuff you would expect. But on the comp side, this was really interesting. They said, you know, the old company, they set the goals really high and 80% of people missed the goal and we got paid X. In the new company, we still get paid X, but they set the goals in a way that X is the pay, like the, the goal, the bar is way lower. So 80% of people hit their goal. And you know what that does? It makes us feel really good about uh, uh, performing and it drives people to over then overperform because you know, it's just this sort of behavioral economics anchoring thing where they're like, it it just brings us a lot more Joy to be a part of an organization where we feel a sense of accomplishment. The team's winning, not a sense of like they're winning. We're winning. We're growing the business. We're delivering value. It's
1: you know, it's it didn't cost this company any more a dime. It didn't cost them another dime. Before we get into Joel's effect, then same question around sales managers because again, in Challenger, you go into some detail, and I think the thing that surprised me—I will probably get the, the numbers wrong. I think it was something like, tw- was it 20% was driven by coaching? And actually, one of the things that you said was absolutely critical was that the sales managers could sell. Yeah, And, and I, see that, I see that a lot in, in the businesses that I work with because, you know, you make the point that the sales manager is probably going to have to get some of these more tricky things over the yeah. line. Yeah. And, and if they can't, you know, you don't have the ability to win those bigger deals.
0: You know, what's interesting, though, is that, and you, you, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this um, uh, more times than I have, but I mean, how old is the the tale of the high-performing salesperson who feels like they've got no opportunity to advance in their career, and so they see the only path forward is to become a manager, and then they <laughs> flame out as manager. So it turns <laughs> out, what made them a rock star individual, it's like, doesn't translate uh, to being a great leader of man, people. Man, I see it every and day. I, every day. I, all the time, right? You know, and so I, I think it's... Um, it's interesting. I think that the exact data, which now you're now you're that's all the way down. That's all the way in the back of the book. So you're really <laughs> testing my knowledge here. But as I recall, it was. I mean, there were some basic fundamentals like that were required. of It doesn't matter if you're managing a- anybody, call center workers, a marketing department, finance team. It's honesty, integrity, um, good communication skills, things like that. It's just like that's kind of stock in trade of being a leader and being a manager. Then then you had um, sales ability. You had coaching. And then you had what we call deal innovation. And just on those pieces, I think just to click on a, on those really quickly. So on the um, selling ability, I think what's really interesting is that in our research, we found that the managers, as a general rule, could sell and they could demonstrate the skills required to be good at sales, but they weren't necessarily the highest performing salespeople. That was not a prerequisite. And, and as I just mentioned, it turns out a lot of the highest performing salespeople end up being the worst managers the The second piece on coaching, this is the thing that we found in this research and in previous research. If I were back to the question you asked is what would you look for in a sales manager, or sales director candidate? I would say it's coaching ability. That is the number one thing. Um, your manager's ability to coach your people, pays massive dividends. It drives performance, obviously, but it also drives retention and engagement. It gets the team motivated, makes them want to work harder, gets them to want to stick around and grow their careers and, and be a a member of the team and of the organization. And the opposite is also true. Managers who suck at coaching, they don't get any performance lift and they make their people want to leave. We used to call this... Um, in the US, we call it the um, the Michael Scott effect, but we call it the David Brent effect, I guess, in, uh, in the UK, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So it depends on where you're watching the office. But, but yeah, so you've got to... Um, the opposite is also true. You drive people away when you are really awful at coaching. The sales innovation piece was interesting because that spoke to less the sales manager's ability as a salesperson, but more their creativity and their ability to sit down with the rep and say why don't we approach this from a slightly different angle? Have we tried positioning the solution this way or the um, the pricing this way? You know, or let's maybe move these pieces over here and those pieces over there. And so, a lot of that is not because they're just wizards, it's because they're very good at tapping into the wisdom of crowds and, and engaging with their colleagues uh, who are running other sales teams, maybe in other divisions, other geographies, maybe who sit right next to them in the office next door and picking their brains about what's working for them, what's getting your deals unstuck. And maybe I can take some of that learning and use it to help my team. The, the what I, last thing I'll say is, um, I think a good metaphor here, or a good analogy is is um, golf. So if you think about all these top players in the world, with very rare exception, they have coach a coach. In some cases, they have many coaches. They've got like a putting coach, they've got a full swing coach, et cetera. And those coaches, as a general rule, have never reached the levels that they're their pupils, uh, you know, these professional golfers, golfers of Some of them have never even played on the professional circuit. Some of them have a little bit of experience. They've never won majors, they've never won tournaments. But their gift is coaching and innovating where they see something going wrong and spotting it and giving some ideas to help the coachee improve. And just that ability to impart wisdom. And that always struck me as a perfect analogy because like. Why would Tiger Woods or Roy McIlroy or any of these world famous golfers listen to somebody who's never had the achievements that they've had? And it's because their gift is performing, hitting a golf ball. This person's gift is helping people improve and motivating them to improve,
1: right? I think also having run companies and now coaching CEOs is it's where you get your joy from. And so I had no idea that I would enjoy this job more than any other job I'd ever had until I did it. And then it's like, oh, I just I could just do this all day long. I could help people grow their businesses all gift. day long. And say. So, it really is. You know, you know, if you're if you're a coach, you get joy from coaching. I was, I was talking to a guy. We had a client, new client here this week, and his son's a ski instructor. And he said he was chatting to his son about. He said the best days are when on the first week of a family, first day of a family vacation. Uh, Dad and the sons are off skiing. And and Mum comes in for a day, and she's a bit tentative, and she's with us because the like the lads are all skiing hard and and that's not her thing. And he said, Wednesday, I send her back to her family and she out skis them all. And he's and it's like, that, <laughs> that's the best. They're the best they're the best customers for him. And it's just that that's where he gets his joy from helping other people.
0: Yeah, I've got a buddy of mine who's um start he was a uh when I was at Corn Ferry, he was one of their top um search consultants and executive recruiters. And um he went off and started his own uh, his own shop a number of years ago and has been really successful. And I, I remember asking him, like, how would he describe his job? And he said, I'm an executive coach. I was like, it's funny because coaching's not listed on your website as a service you offer. He said, No, but I I spend all day, every day, every weekend, the evenings, the early mornings. Texting with clients and and coaching them and helping them through different business situations. I mean, have a whole gamut of like, you know, development issues or leadership issues or growth issues or working with the board or or managing a difficult employee or, you know, thinking about um, team dynamics. And people come to me and ask me all these questions because they think I can help and I try to be helpful and it brings me a lot of joy. And then they end up hiring me to do search work for them. But that's not what he's like. What I really enjoy is helping them. You oh, know, it's, it's just fascinating. That's
1: brilliant. Look, let's dig into... Uh, oh, I tell you what, you could che- I could just fact check a heuristic with you. So, I mean, you might not know the answer, but in my mind, because you were talking about sales managers' impact on teams. And one of the other companies you spoke about earlier was that, that span of control. And I don't know whether I've made it up or whether I read it somewhere. But in my mind, it's like, if I've got four salespeople... I don't hire a fifth salesperson. i hire a manager at that point. And and have you got a sense of what span of control can be if you put a great manager in and and sort of impact?
0: Yeah. I think so. Most of the numbers I've seen have been a little higher than that. But I think you've got to keep in mind the the, the complexity of the sale, right? And the size of these deals, um, the sales cycle, etc., you could see a one to four, one to five ratio makes perfect sense in a world in which your salespeople are working only a handful of really big deals and you need to spend really intensive time with, it's almost more of like a team-based sales effort, right? With your salesperson on the deal, on calls. And so there in that world, a one to seven, one to 10, one to 12 kind of ratio just falls apart, right? Because your people don't get the the attention and the support they need. But in a much more transactional, take as an extreme example, like um, a transactional sales that happen over the phone, in a, even in a B2B call center, right? That spans of the control there end up being much bigger, right? Uh, you're talking about like low teens uh, kind of thing, because it's kind of a wash, rinse and repeat. And, and truthfully, like a lot of those jobs are going away because a lot of those things are being sold online now. Um, you know, customers realize they don't really need to call and talk to anybody about this.
1: So let's dive into the jolt effect. So once in a lifetime, maybe, opportunity, as you say at the beginning of the book, because COVID comes along, and whereas you, you had some call data before, it was those sort of call center-based sales reps you could listen to. Now, everybody everybody's doing every sales interaction online, and now all of a sudden, you've got all the data for solution selling that you've never had before, it, a huge a huge volume, and machine learning's come on in such a way that <laughs> you don't have to pay people to listen to it and make notes.
0: Well, that was the one downside of Neil Rackham's. They, they sat there with clipboards literally
1: taking notes <laughs> in, the, in the meeting, so I was like, I think I want to it's do that. It's not a <laughs> that people didn't repeat the exercise.
0: It's um, As I think about that experience, you're, you're quite right. I mean, we, we really benefited tremendously from the pandemic, right, which moved sales, you know, to 100% virtual, literally overnight. It's the same thing as work from home. Like companies would wring their hands about telework and, you know, people working from home, whatever, for many, many years until the pandemic came along and it decided that for them. And the same thing with with sales. I mean, I think most companies were were slowly starting to incorporate Zoom and Teams and some of these virtual platforms into their sales motion long before the pandemic. And there were plenty of companies, especially SaaS companies, um, which were almost 100% virtual already. But for you know those big companies, I remember talking to companies at a co- uh, sales leaders at a conference. I was actually working for a company called Tether at the time that did conversational analytics. And as you said, Dom, their their sweet spot had been really that. That call center, because in a call center, everything is recorded for compliance and as you know, like uh, compliance and training purposes. Like everything is uh, recorded, and that's what they do, right? You don't have a conversation that's not recorded. Um, it all goes through that single challenge, very controlled kind of environment. But when I talked to B two B companies and I said, you know, we've got this amazing technology over here, and we do work with consumer call centers, some B two B, but mostly consumer would you ever consider recording your B2B call, your calls as a B2B sales leader with your customers? And the answers I got were like, oh, we could never do that. Like, there's no way. Um, our customers would never be honest with us. They would never want that to happen. Our salespeople would hate that because they would know there's Big Brother and they're being checked in on. And then COVID happened and then everything started being recorded. Now, I think that's when companies suddenly realized the power of this data set that they've been kind of... I would say um, I don't think it was, they were naive. They knew there was sort of gold in there, but they just didn't want to. Col- They're worried about the risk of collecting it and, and doing something. What would that have What happened to the customer interaction? What happened to my salespeople and their engagement levels? But yeah, we had this benefit uh, of the pandemic, which forced everyone to just go virtual overnight. And went out to several dozen companies, and we asked them, for the purposes of this research project, we just send us all of your uh, call recordings. I would say most of them, some of them were already on platforms like um, like Gong or Chorus or these kinds of you know, sales loft where they were already recording the calls. Some of them were using Zoom and it's pretty easy to just, they and I, they weren't recording, but they said, you know, yeah, for the purposes of this study, if we know we're going to get value out of it, we'll just add, give our salespeople like a little bit of coaching on how to ask. And the salespeople started start asking and it was interesting. They found that the most effective way to ask was to position as a value add to the customer. Yeah, I know we've got, you know, Dom wasn't able to join us today, but if we record it, we can, I'll send you the link and you can send them the recording of the call. Or maybe just record it and you can go back and listen to it if there's anything that was confusing to you. Um, or even better, do you mind if I record it? Because so That way I can go back and listen to it again and make sure I'm capturing all the detail of what you share with me and don't ask you to repeat yourself later. Customers are like, absolutely, knock yourself out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even recall if there was any of these participating companies that was ever told no by a customer. Um they're like yeah, our customers have no problem with that. And so we collected this and we studied it with machine learning. I think there were so two and a half million sales calls. We looked at eighty three hundred variables.
1: <laughs> How did you find eighty three hundred variables? Well, yeah, a lot, but anyway, a lot. anyway, so that's 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 a lot. That's a lot. Good. But you know, what's cool about it is
0: because we're collecting this data, and, and a lot of these these uh, calls were appended to Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics or HubSpot records. They dynamically updated even while we were doing the research. So, you may have been doing calls, and the salesperson's you know, and the the study has concluded, but the salesperson's still kind of working the deal and trying to get it close. And we would be able to like pull the data like as of up to the minute and say, okay, which were the one and lost deals? And what we became fascinated by um, was more the deals that were marked as closed, lost, no decision, or the deals that had just kind of died on the vine. You know, they might've still been open in, in the CRM, but they, for all intents and purposes, were dead and were going nowhere. And so that, that became the crux of the book is like, why does that happen to salespeople What would possess a customer to not just waste your time, but waste their own time going through this, in some cases, weeks or months of evaluating a solution, demos and POCs and consensus team calls and iterations of the proposal and talking to legal and finance and procurement, and then they just do nothing? Like, are they just gluttons for punishment? Like, why would they do that? And then more importantly, um, what do the best salespeople do to avoid that? And it was, what we found was, um, you've listened to it, I thought thought it was pretty interesting (laughs) and surprising.
1: Well, I, I liked the fact that the best people somehow intuitively knew that this they weren't talking to somebody who was going to make a decision. And uh, that sort of subconsciously, they filtered out some of those no decisions early, whereas the, the less mature or less skilled salesperson went on and did the whole, quote, proposal, chased you even though you were ghosting them thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, they. Um, I think it's the the old saying goes, um, the average salesperson loves chasing garbage
1: trucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just love it. And do you know? Do you know? Because when you said, as you were saying, why do they do this? I, I, I think in those organizations where only fifteen percent of people hit quota, right? If you don't hit quota, you've got to be in busy. Otherwise, you get fired because you didn't sell anything. But, but if you if you didn't sell anything and you weren't busy, you're definitely going to get fired. And I've also been in organizations where their close rate was only 10%. You know, you look at the sales meeting and I can see that what happens is people want to have stuff in their pipeline. And because the close rate is so low, the expectation is a low close. And so the whole, you build up this culture of we quote for everything. Cause again, success is not, we don't need success. What we just need is to show that we're busy and then we won't get fired. Right. Whereas you go to some, you go to some sales meetings and people go, I've got nothing in my pipeline. I've or I've got one deal in my pipeline that I'm going to close. And and it's like that's they're the two extremes. You know? Yeah.
0: You see them both though. You're right. You know, it's the worst example of that we found in the research um was when you when you talk about the customer and salespeople see this all the time, like the customer who is really never satisfied with the amount of information you're sharing with them. So they want like Dom, can we do one more demo with the team that did the, we did the last four demos with? Or can we, I just want one more reference call. Or can I just, you know what? The Gartner Magic Quadrant comes out next. Quarter. I think I want to wait to see that. Or you know what? I want to wait till you guys do that webinar next month because that sounds like it's really going to have some valuable insight for us. And what's interesting is um, average salespeople love that stuff because in their mind, that's a customer making progress towards a decision. And even better, when I sit down with my sales director and they ask me for an update, I go, oh, I got another reference call set up with Dom and his team, so there's stuff happening here. I can put it in the CRM system. You're still you're alive. It's still yeah. alive, right? But that high performer knows that deal is going nowhere, uh, and and actually they're they're moving away from a decision, not towards a decision, because at some point the customer starts to get wrapped around the axle and suffer from, if you will, analysis paralysis. But that, that was just one example. But but it's this weird thing where for most salespeople, what they're being told feels like a good thing. But actually, the the really great salespeople know that that is a really bad thing that's happening
1: right now. I had a team once where they, they didn't do enough. They weren't doing enough outreach and they were spending a lot of time chasing dead deals. Yeah. So yeah. I said, okay, here's the deal, guys. You can only do quotes in your own time. Mm. Before nine, after five, you're not doing quotes in my time. Yeah. Because... That was the only way to make it painful enough that they only did quotes for things that they thought they could actually close as a, as a sort of culture, as a behavioral change.
0: <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. That's a little bit like trying to shorten meetings by making everyone stand up or do, sit doing them in the plank position or something yeah, like that. It's that, like,
1: like they turns out to. that stuff works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. So what, what I mean, you ended up with, is it about 60% of deals on no
0: decision? We found it was actually 40 to 60%. And the reason for that range was that, um, as you can imagine, in more transactional sales, we we're talking about lower price points, uh, more transactional kind of product sales that we see in B2B, the no decision loss rate was actually much higher. And the reason was because it's not a huge investment for the customer to just kick the tires a bit on a, on a product they're sort of interested in. And so you end up with a lot more ghosting there. Now, with really complex, long cycle, high price point, lots of stakeholders, lots of uh, multi-threading that has to happen to get the deal across the line, no decision loss, right? Closer to 40%. And the reason we think is that we hypothesize is that customers think twice before they enter into a something like that. Because if they know deep down, we're never going to buy this. It's like, then why are you going to waste three or six months of your time evaluating it? And so they, they're a bit more cautious. But 40% still, you, we're talking deals that are like in the, you know, um, uh, seven uh, plus kind of figure range. And like, so the million dollar plus, I mean, these are expensive solutions. So there's, it runs the gamut from 40 to 60%. By the way, the extreme example is actually consumer in, in the, because we we tested that out too, just for fun. You know, when you or I call, uh, an insurance company, or we call a card issuer, or we call a um, a consumer service provider like a cable company or a wireless company. The no decision loss rates like eighty or ninety percent because um, it, it just if you want any evidence of that, think of all the things you put in your shopping cart online that you never end up buying. You know, doesn't cost you anything to put it in there. It does cost you something to buy it though. <laughs> so,
1: I'm still amazed that that big deal that's going to, as you say, is going to take multiple people. Multiple calls and take six months. That they, forty percent of people still don't make a decision. It's that's still fascinating because it's so time-consuming. Yeah, it's
0: so it's so time-consuming. If you think about that, forty percent. So take an extreme example. Say you you sell complex solutions to complex customers, long sales cycle, high dollar value, transfer, transformative solutions that you're selling and you think about that 40% of your opportunities qualified opportunities not all opportunities we're not talking about like some of the junk you might get um inbound stuff you know badge scans at the at the trade show booth that's not they're not really legit opportunities um we're talking about qualified opportunities 40% of those will end up in no man's land they'll end up just kind of evaporating on you and going nowhere is huge, huge in terms of time suck, right? And time loss. And if you're a sales manager, and you multiply that across your team. And if you're a sales director or sales leader, think about that across an organization. And it's just, it's got to be the biggest single uh, time suck in a sales organization. I mean, it's just absolutely massive.
1: It's interesting because now that Jolt Effect has come out, I can see why some of the things that we've done with clients have worked. And then when we've taken those learnings and applied them more broadly across other clients, though, so, you know, we've got some clients that are doing consulting and they might be up against Accenture, right? And so, it, you know, in those conversations, people are sort of saying, well, look, nobody got fired for buying IBM, right? You know, buying Accenture, you know, you do your due diligence, you go through a sales process, you buy Accenture, nobody's going to fire you for making that decision. And I look at some of our clients and you go, but to buy you is a career defining decision. Right. So when does that go well? It often goes well when the the purchaser's been in seat like ninety days, maybe, and they've come in and they have a mandate for change, and in fact, in many cases, they've got to do something different to what their predecessor oh, yeah. would do, and yeah. so in that case, then the buyer and the seller are a perfect fit, and you know some of these deals might be, I guess, a million dollars, and they sort of say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're just going to say. We're gonna. We can start tomorrow, without legals, and we can start at thirty thousand dollars a month, and you know that's that's sort of the sign-off limit. So nobody has to go through any process, and we're in the door and we started. And in fact, some of their clients just pay them thirty thousand pounds a month, <laughs> sort of forever, because then they don't have to go and tell anybody they're doing it. And it and so it's it's actually that whole how do you help them mitigate the risk, how do you get the time to value uh, equation right, so that. You can get them to go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you you're, you nailed it. I mean, the for I think
0: the big reveal in the jolt effect is that um, you know when our every salesperson seen this movie, I don't know, you know, unfortunately, way too often, which is that customer who says literally will say, "I want to buy from you. We've ruled out everyone else. We want to solve this problem. You're the people we want to work with. You've been down selected. It's just you. Let's
1: talk." And then things feel like they kind of go off the rails. And what it's ninety five percent in the forecast. I'm I'm starting to spend the commission in my head. Oh yeah, you may
0: have already spent it. <laughs> <laughs> you were taking out a loan, free a commission loan, a <laughs> uh, payday loan. So they, so yeah, you're you're right. You've you've promised your your significant other like you know new car and you know <laughs> fancy vacation and these kinds of things. And um, so what ends up happening is when that customer starts to hesitate. Salespeople in their minds, because they've been taught this for so long, just like sales leaders believe, every salesperson is coin operated. Salespeople believe the only reason that happens is because the customer is not convinced of the value. They still think that what they're doing today is good enough. They haven't, they don't really understand the cost of their inaction. They're suffering from what psychologists would call status quo bias, right? Um which is basically that is the you know, fancy way of saying people are lazy. Like people don't like to change. It takes a lot to get people to change and get customers to move forward, even when they're looking at a solution that would clearly make them better off. It's still hard to get them to change. And salespeople know this. So they're, when the customer starts to vibrate or hesitate or kind of ghost them, they're like, it's got to be because they believe if They what they're doing today is good enough. They're not convinced of the value of my solution or they think this is not a top priority for them. And so uh, what do I do? I go back and I do one of three things. I try to reconvince them of the value of my solution. Like, Dom, did you, were you were you asleep during the demo? Because you must have missed how cool it is. <laughs> Did you, I sent the ROI to you. Did you see how many zeros were on that ROI projection? Or um, they then go back and they try to dial up the FUD, right? They try to scare the customer into acting. And the way they do it is, you know, create that burning platform. And, and truthfully, we talk about this in the challenger sale, like make the customer see that the pain of fame, the pain of the status quo is worse than the pain of change. Dial up the cost of inaction. If you don't solve this problem, you're going to be left in the dust. You're going to be left with a mess. You're you're going to be suffering in this horrible state of affairs that you find yourself in today. You can't wish these problems away. And if those two things don't work, the third play is the 10% discount that's only good this quarter, Because right? <laughs> <laughs> if if those other things won't convince you, then maybe the fear that you're going to pay more in January if you don't buy in December, maybe that'll get you to say yes now. And what we found was surprising that um, those things when you're talking about a customer who has said stated their intent who said said yeah we want we need to solve this problem. yeah, you're the supplier we need to work with. I'm convinced of the value. let's move forward and then they start to hesitate if you use that playbook it actually increases the likelihood the customer will do nothing. The reason is um, is that you're what you're doing in that moment is you're using scare tactics to sell to a customer, but you're selling to the customer who's actually already afraid. But the thing is, they're not afraid of the thing you think they're afraid of. Salespeople think the customer, I've got to make them more afraid of missing out. Dial up the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. It turns out what they're afraid of is not the FOMO. They're not afraid of missing out. They're afraid of messing up. It's the FOMU, the fear of messing up or the not safe for work version is so Fofu, but I'll let your listeners figure out on their own what that stands for. So, but that's what they're worried about, and, you're, and you think, and this is especially perplexing. This has to do with a psychological effect called the omission bias, which it turns out is actually more powerful than status quo bias, which every salesperson is familiar with. That's just laziness, and I don't want to change. Omission bias is about not wanting to make a mistake. I'll give you I'm going to give your listeners a um an example from social science, a psychological experiment that's actually a pretty famous experiment in testing the omission bias. It's a little bit morbid so I apologize, but the experiment is this. Imagine that you're standing on a train platform and you see a train approaching and then you look down the tracks and you see a group of rail workers there busily working on the tracks with headphones on and clearly they have no idea this train's coming. They're not even looking up. And they're all about to get mowed over there, five of those guys. And they're about to get run over by this train. But and this is why it's a hypothetical. There's a lever on the platform. And if you pull that lever, it would send the train on the opposite set of tracks. And it would save those five rail workers. However, there are two rail workers on the other tracks. And they're definitely going to die if you pull that lever. like Because they know the train's not coming on their track. And so when psychologists ask people this, the rational answer is obviously to pull the lever because yes, five people die, but five people dying is a lot worse than two people dying. Two people dying is not great, but it's better than five. So rationally, every single time, you should pull the lever, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But people don't. And the reason that most people don't is that they would rather be indirectly responsible for five people dying than be personally responsible for two people dying. It makes no rational sense whatsoever, but as like Dan Ariely would say, it's predictably irrational. It's just the way we're wired. Nobody wants to be blamed. And, and you think about this in sales, what it comes down to is, I know, Dom, I know the status quo sucks. I know what we're doing today is costing us money and we're losing growth opportunities and it's exposing us to risk. I get it. And no, I don't want to pay 10% more in January. Like, I'm, I'm with you. But you know what I want even less? To make a decision and then get fired for making that decision. And so nobody ever got fired for maintaining the status quo. What gets people fired is trying to change it and having it not work out and having their name associated with it. And so that's what people get really worried about. And it it turns out there's a set of things that people really get worried about that salespeople can do something about to get that customer feeling like, you know what, I'm making a great decision here. And I'm working with somebody who's got my back. And
1: they're going to make sure I look like a hero, not like a fool does the customer know before you tell me the what those things are does the customer know that that's their challenge if you say to them look five people one person pull the lever look if we could get the ceo to pull the lever how about that right you know yeah. <laughs> is, is, are, are you are you are you able to rationalize do you think around this with the customer or do you have to approach it tangentially knowing that they have this challenge but that they're not going to admit it to themselves so uh,
0: this is um I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but we are talking about the, the Dunn and Kruger effect. And I think this is very true of customers is that they think they are more decisive than they really are. We actually found in the research across 100% of customers, only 13% of them in the calls associated with those deals displayed none of the trademark emotions that psychologists would say are indicators of indecision. These people were purely rational, just dollars and cents, ROI, Is it the right answer for my business? Let's go. By the way, if you're a salesperson listening, if you find one of those customers, you should sell them every single thing in the bag as soon as possible, (laughs) right? (laughs) But it's only 13% of the market. 87% of the market are, are either moderately or deeply indecisive. And here's the rub about it to your question about, does the customer realize this is happening to them, that they're suffering from this? What's interesting is the more junior customers do realize that. It's the more senior buyers who not only do they have no idea, but in fact, they believe the opposite. They think they are actually being very decisive. And if you ask them, do you consider yourself – if you ask 100 senior executives, C-level executives, do you consider yourself to be a decisive uh, executive, 100% of them will say yes. They'll put their their hand on their heart and they will say absolutely Yes. And they actually get offended when you suggest that maybe you're a little bit scared of messing up or effing up, as it were. I'll To give you a real specific story here, I presented some of this research at a a dinner. I was hosted by a big enterprise software company, and uh, they brought a bunch of their top um, executives together, CIOs, CTOs, CMOs. They sell across a bunch of functional areas there was a woman in the meeting who was the CTO of one of the biggest manufacturers in the world, like top, you know, just one of the top 10 manufacturing company. And I got into the research and she was just pissed. Like she was pissed at the suggestion that people like her feared failure and that they're afraid of messing up. And she like slammed her hand on the table and said, I would get fired if I hesitated for a moment. I make a thousand decisions a day and that is what I get paid to do. That is why I am the CTO of this company. I, there's no way I would have this job if I hesitated. Fear is not part of the game. I'm leaving. She actually left. She stormed out. Dinner, We. it was awkward. And then we had the rest of the dinner. Everyone else said, that was weird. And, and so, and then all the customers left and who the people who were left as me and the hosts who are these sales leaders at this enterprise software company. As soon as the doors closed, they said, you know, we're really sorry that happened and that she she really like you know, went after you about the data. But I got to tell you, she's our most indecisive customer. (laughs) Like she can't make a decision worth a damn. Like it's always Uh, like hemming on. And people, senior executives are so unaware of their indecisiveness.
1: Telling the story reminds me of stuff I've seen in the medical. I, I used to work for Glaxo years ago. And you say to doctors who've been doing a procedure for a long period of time, that actually it's just witchcraft. And there's no evidence that this procedure actually works at all. I mean, you'd think they were doctors and it was rational and they have the patient's best interests at heart, but actually you are challenging their self-worth. Yes. And and they just double down on that. And so it's the same, it's just the same thing. And it's like, you know, whatever they need to do, they won't listen to you. They have to, they have to belittle you, belittle the message, belittle the messenger, whatever it is, because their entire self-respect is is on this, and so it's the same thing. You know, you say to her, "You're indecisive." No, I'm not.
0: Oh, no way. And you know what? So it's what's interesting is that it actually renders some of the traditional sales techniques like moot. And in other words, like if you were to ask, especially think about that buyer, if you were to ask her, like, "Do you consider yourself decisive? Are you worried about getting fired for buying, you know, signing this contract?" you you would never do business with that person again they'd be so deeply offended as this this executive was when you know the suggestion that she might be indecisive and so what you what you need to do then is develop new techniques because what you're what you're really trying to have happen is if i know there's something going on here you're worried about something going wrong but i got to get it on the table so that we can talk about it and do something about it let me help you manage this perceived risk but i can't ask you if you're afraid because I'm going to get kicked out of your office you'll never do business with me again and so we found this is actually not in the book but it was something we found afterwards when we went back into the call data high performers had developed seemed to have developed the technique on their own without ever being taught to do it that um is kind of similar to how a surface ship detects a submarine in the water they they use this technique we've called it pings and echoes. So they they send like a surface ship sends a you know ping into the water and they're tr- they're listening using sonar to listen for the reflection right to is this a whale or is it a submarine is it an enemy submarine or a friendly submarine is it hanging towards us or away from us and so high performers do the same thing so what they don't do is ask the customer if they're if they're afraid of failing or ask them what they're scared of or because that's a recipe for disaster so instead what they do is they try to articulate but in, articulate the fear they suspect their customer has, but in a way that makes it okay to talk about it, it makes that customer feel perfectly normal for having that concern. So it might be something like, you know, Dom, we're, we've had some great conversations, um, you know, back to when we met at the trade show and we've done a couple of demos, we did the POC with your team, it seems like it went really well. But I'm reflecting a bit on kind of where we are right now. And I'll tell you, uh, I sometimes we do our customers a disservice. We show them so much because we're really proud of what we do. But we don't tell them what not to buy. We just show them all this stuff that they could buy. And I think it leads sometimes to our customers feeling a little bit overwhelmed and not know exactly what's nice to have and need to have. And you, Dom, you're very clear to me, when we first met at the trade show, you said our budget's limited this year. And so we do move forward. We got to be very choosy about the way we move forward. We can't have it all. And I'm reflecting a bit on that. And I'm also reflecting on the feedback that I got from you and the other members of the team that everything we showed you seemed to resonate. And so I'm just a little concerned right now that if I asked you, do you know what is nice to have, what is need to have? Of all the things we showed you, could you guys answer that question? And if if you can, I'd love to know. And if you can't, I'd love to be of some value to you and stop just dumping more stuff on your plate to consider. And let me help you be a guide to make that hard choice because we know this is a really important decision. And I, I, I want to be a good steward of your budget and I want to help you guys buy the right solution for you. Now, what you might say in response is, Matt, we were just being polite. This is, you know, who we are as a company. There's a lot of stuff you showed us. We have no interest in, and we weren't that impressed with it. So let me tell you what that is. Okay, cool, thanks, Tom. Or you might say, um, yeah, no, you know what? Um, we don't know, and you're 100% right. If you asked us right now what we could fit into our budget of all the stuff you showed us, I think you'd have a big debate on the buying team, on the uh, across the, the the group that's evaluating this as to what's nice to have and what's need to have. So. What do other customers like us start with? Like, can you give us some guidance there? Like, tell us, help us avoid wasting our time and money on things that you know are not going to deliver the value because my name's on this and I need it to go well. So it, it creates that kind of safe zone in which we can talk about a real human problem and get down to brass tacks about what's giving you
1: pause. It's really helpful for people to know that that's the way that they should approach it. Would it be, the same to say. Look, if we think about where clients it goes well for clients and where it goes badly, so there's some things. Do you want me to share where it goes badly, and is it would it be helpful to maybe say what some of those landmines are? Is it it's that sort of teasing out? So it sounds like completely normal for both of us to be in this conversation.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, uh, you're you're right. That's something, and it's you know what's interesting is um, it's very rare across salespeople. The, the, the salespeople who are confident enough. I say, confident enough, comfortable enough, and other-centric enough to be um completely transparent about the fact that some stuff that we make doesn't actually work very well. And some things that sometimes this doesn't go well. and it doesn't always it's not always roses and, you know, pots of gold. It's sometimes things go badly. and I want to tell you what those things are. The good news is we know what those things are, and so we can plan for them in advance and make sure you don't end up in one of those traps. But, you know, your average salesperson is just going to, they're like a bobblehead doll. Like, oh, can you do this? Yeah, yeah. Can you integrate with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you have this feature? Yeah, we have that. Oh, this, oh, it's on the roadmap. You know, all our customers love us. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, (laughs) come on. This is the real world, you know. But your confident salespeople, they're, no, they're very above board, truthful, transparent, honest, because they're not not motivated by selling this deal back to our comp conversation. They're motivated about getting the customer the right answer.
1: Well, and you know what? If that's a circular thing there, which I think will, We'll wrap this bit of the show up there because what that says is that what you found when you did Challenger Sale, and what you found when you did the Jolt Effect, how many years apart? Oh gosh, uh, twenty eleven Challenger Sale, twenty twenty two, so eleven years apart. Yeah. Okay, but that you found that top performing salespeople, that's still not, well, it's not surprising. It's not still true, but but you found you went you the research came at it a completely different thing, and you end up with the same answer that the top performing salespeople have a level of self-confidence and are interested in the customer and not ka Yeah,
0: you're, you're right. And and look, I, I think one of the things that, um you know, before I said, in Challenger, we talk about, Challenger is really good at overcoming the customer, beating the customer status quo, creating that urgency, showing the customer the pain of same is worse than the pain of change. They're very good at breaking the customer status quo bias, which is a very powerful enemy. And to make, you know, no bones about it, if you don't convince the customer to change from their status quo... Jolt is not your problem. Indecision is not your problem. You're never gonna have you're never gonna have the luxury of getting to that point because you haven't convinced the customer to change. Like they're still stuck in the vice grip of what they do today and their status quo. So you still got to do that. And actually, what the Joel research showed us is that the very best salespeople are really, really good at that part as well. But they're doing more than that. And at some point, you got to shift gears from trying to win the battle of customer indifference. To then become uh, shift gears to winning the battle to overcome customer indecision. Those are two diff- different things. One is about one is about kind of convincing the customer, creating the burning platform, showing them the pain. Same is worse than the pain change. The other one's kind of about putting your arm around the customer's shoulders and saying, you know, Dom, you're making a great decision here. You've made the right decision for you and your company about what not to buy as well. And I, I've helped you in that decision. You don't need to do research until the cows come home because I'm here to help you. Because I've already done all the research. So use me as a resource and you can trust that what I'm sharing with you is the right answer because I'm not motivated to sell. I'm motivated to help you. And lastly, there's a safety net. You're not going to look like a hero. You're going to look, or a fool. You're going to look like a hero. And here's how we know that because we put these things in place so that we can manage the risk uh, appropriately and we can set you up for success. And we're going to overperform on what we expect, not underperform. And those are the kinds of things that customers say, yeah. Like I'm, I'm ready to put my badge on the table and sign that agreement, and have my name associated with it. So you got to beat back the omission bias, not just the status quo
1: bias. Matt, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: Oh gosh, um, uh, what a pain writing sales <laughs> books was. I guess I was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, but you said earlier you were starting to write a new one I already. I know. I know. Yeah. I,
0: I I don't learn. I'm not a good. <laughs> <laughs> Learned, Dom. Yeah, it's funny, you mentioned um, uh, consulting before. So we we actually have a new bit of research out in Harvard Business Review, it came out in October. No, sorry, it was out in October. It's in the November, December issue. Um, it's called What Today's Rainmakers Do Differently. And and so I've always been fascinated by, you know, we've done a lot of research on B2B sales. So people who sell software, medical devices, you know, manufactured products, chemicals, et cetera. But what we never studied was a doer-seller. So meaning like where you're selling advice. So think about lawyers, accountants, investment bankers, wealth managers, commercial realtors, consultants, right? Uh, executive search professionals, uh, PR. Business ad- coaches. Business coaches, exactly right, right? Like And so we never, when you are the product and what you're selling is effectively advice, it's not something you can touch or feel. And not only that, but the go-to-market motion is quite different where you're selling and then more often than not you're also delivering that work and that value to the client you're selling yourself and we never really studied that and it's interesting because it's it's like the second biggest sector of the global economy after like healthcare it's huge and there's never been a good answer i mean there's a lot of like b2b sales a lot of conventional wisdom out there be a trusted advisor you know it's uh, you you're a finder minder or grinder you know there's a lot of these ideas that have been out there in professional services and financial services for you know, decades. And so we went out and did a database study and um and found a surprising set of answers about how today's top partners in professional and financial services firms have evolved their client engagement approach in in a new and different way. And so, um, that's actually going to be the crux of the new book. Um, and so look for that in 2025. Or Fantastic. <laughs> it's actually, it's why, this is why I keep, um, I'm probably droning a little bit on and on here, but the thing I got to do after this podcast recording is get back to work on the book. <laughs> so, I'm helping
1: I'm, I'm helping you with your procrastination. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, what, uh, other than all of your fabulous books, which you're too humble to mention again, what should people, what have you got that, you spin selling you mentioned. What else should people pick up?
0: So I, um, I mean, I, I think I'm kind of like a maybe amateur or B-list version of like some of the some of the the writers I really like. The business writers I've I've always been fascinated by, and I think do fantastic work. Or like the we mentioned Dan Pink before. I love Dan Pink's a a personal friend. He lives in the DC area as well, and has been a great source of advice and, and mentorship. And as I've been kind of plowing ahead as an author and, and speaker and what have you. Uh, Dan Heath uh, of uh, the Heath Brothers fame, also a, another big uh, big fan of his work, uh, especially for those who who love how to how do I I've got powerful data or ideas how do I make those stick I can't recommend enough uh, Made to Stick is one of my favorite business books of all time, but, you know Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Charles Duhigg, um, Ori Brofman, they're they're just fantastic Dan Ariely, um, uh, Kahneman. like I I really like the when people take data and combine it with powerful stories to change the way we think about something that maybe we thought we understood, but it turns out now we look at it in a different way. And I think I've tried in my career to do that as well in sales and in customer service. Again, an amateur version of what those guys do, but uh, but it's I I love what I love that idea of combining data and stories uh, because I believe I, I deep down I believe st- salespeople are, you know, they're, they're skeptical bunch. I think that the data and the fact that's, you know, this is database and science based. It's not just me yelling and screaming from the stage is that this comes from a robust study so you can trust it, but they want to, they want to get excited about it too. So you need the story element as well. And I like, I like that. And I think that's what, that's what salespeople respond to.
1: Of all of those authors though, what were the top two or three for 2023? What, what do you...
0: So um, I spent a lot of time with um, – when we did Jolt Effect, we spent a lot of time going through a lot of uh, Kahneman's work and his older work with Saversky, But Thinking Fast and Slow, it's, it's a big book. Um, so it's not uh, it's not exactly light reading, but I, but I uh, it's fascinating stuff just about the way the human brain works. Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational is a, a classic as well. We talked about Dan Pink's Drive, and I mentioned the Heath Brothers Made to Stick – uh, Charles Duhigg, Power of Habits. I I love that book. If you haven't um, uh, of Power of Habit, if you haven't seen uh, read that yet, also a great book.
1: Brilliant, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Dom. I appreciate the time.